Turn with me to, if you have your Bible, to Galatians 4. We will be in Romans 12, but just briefly enough that you don't need to turn there. Galatians 4. If you're still managing dessert slash babies slash iced tea, that's fine. I will read the text to you. Nobody will judge you if you did not open or bring your Bible. That's okay. Galatians 4. But I'm going to begin our time together in Romans 12. We'll make our way to Galatians 4. For most of our time together. But in Romans 12, there's three little tiny Greek words, little bitty words, which really embody an entire attitude. They embody a procedure, an entire way of living in the body of Christ, living in the local church. And these little words are found in Paul's list of Romans 12 of how we're to demonstrate love to one another in the church. The list begins in verse 9 with Paul's command, let love be genuine. And one of the ways that genuine love is is expressed and demonstrated is this little three Greek word power-packed instruction found at the end of Romans 12, verse 15, weep with those who weep. Three little words. Now, in, in Greek, you don't have to remember this, but just to point out a detail, it's an infinitive followed by a participle. And what that means is that it's carrying on the previous thought The previous thought in verse 9, let love be genuine. And literally in Greek, it says, what does that mean? To weep with the weeping. To weep with the weeping. That's what genuine love is. I don't really have to explain some deeper meaning here. It's very obvious. It's rich. It's splendid in its truth. It tells you how to relate to a brother or sister who's in pain, to weep with them, to come alongside them in their time of misery. And I don't even have to ask for a show of hands if I ask how many of you have been through a time of misery in your life. That's everyone. All of you have. But I want to apply this to a a very specific type of situation which is with us always in some form because we live in a sinful world. It's with us in our own church. It's with us in the other people that you interact with in your sphere of influence. And that is imparting genuine compassion to the sick specifically genuine Christian compassion to the sick. And so I want to, first of all, just to to get our minds thinking right, I want to identify three categories of illness. And I think this really covers everything. Three categories of illness. The first one we'll just call the short-term definable illness. And it's one that has a name. It's the cold. It's the flu. It's having your gallbladder removed. It's a sprained ankle. It's something that is obvious We know there's a beginning point and there is a foreseeable end point. At Grace Bible Church, we generally know what to do with those things. We pray for one another. We visit the hospital if necessary. We encourage each other. But there's a foreseeable end. And so everybody's generally pretty relaxed about it. I I think we'll be okay. There's a second category we'll just call the long-term definable illness that has a name like diabetes or cancer or chronic breathing problems or all kinds of other maladies. Some are lifetime problems that have to be dealt with. Others are life-threatening diseases that in some cases will even take the life of that person. Again, we pray for them. We encourage them. We care for them in any way that the seriousness of the illness alone very often motivates us toward compassion. If you get an email saying that so-and-so has a cold, you might pray for them. If you get an email saying that they have cancer, you will pray for them because the seriousness drives us. So we understand those two categories. 
But there's a third category that I think is, is harder to define. And we might call that the, the unnamed, sometimes undiagnosed, or sometimes undiagnosable illness that may be a unique combination of strange symptoms that literally no one else can relate to because they're very distinctive. Our beloved former youth pastor, James Street, he fell into this category. He developed an odd combination of stomach pains, complete exhaustion, digestive problems that that turned out to be three different tick-borne diseases in a completely unique combination that no doctor had ever seen before. And it's still something he's trying to recover from, and, and they believe he's had that for at least seven years now. And, and so for us to say, well, we know what that is, no, we don't necessarily. And that, that's the third category. That's the one I want to address for us this afternoon. The category, it, it may be short-term. It may be long-term. It may be something that completely makes somebody bedridden one day, and the next day they feel fine, and then two days later they're down again, and nobody knows why. Maybe there's not a real name for it. Maybe it's been misdiagnosed many times. It's just that some severe things are wrong and no doctor has really been able to come up with a solution or maybe there is no solution. Maybe it's just a a, a mysterious lifetime malady that's going to continue. Now, this category is, is very close to my own heart and with her permission... I'd like to share for a moment what our experience has been with my wife, Sylvia, having near constant battles with various health issues, falling into this third category. It began in her early 20s and included misdiagnoses by multiple doctors. It included being told that she should never have children. It included being told uh, you have some odd combination of blood sugar problems that one doctor said was diabetes, another said was hypoglycemia, and it was neither one. Uh, it includes fatigue and dizziness. It included uh, hormone imbalances, even at a very, very young age. Um, it has included a constant battle with an inability to sleep deeply. And in the last couple of years, migraine headaches of the thunderous variety, sometimes at the rate of five and six per week, and that, that last a day. Now, she's not the only one. There, there are many people just in our own group right here in this room who are suffering with a variety of maladies. Some have a name and are incurable. Some don't have a name. Some are fairly serious. Some are very serious. Some are just enough to to, to make you wonder if you're actually really healthy. Probably right now, I could ask all of you to think of somebody you know who's in this category, and all of you can. Because we live in a sinful world, we live in a world where illness still resides with us. And so it's something that's with us all the time. And in situations like this, where, where so many are, are suffering, very often it is our instinct, especially in American culture, to try to think of a solution, to try to have the answer. And that is exactly what I want us to rethink this morning. I want to rethink that thought. Now we can look together at the book of Galatians to see what weeping with those who weep really means. I'm going to start in chapter 1, and you don't have to turn with me, but we'll work our way to chapter 4. I just want you to understand the book. Um, Paul is writing to a group of churches in the area of Galatia that he's planted, those who first heard the gospel from him, but now they're beginning to stray. They're beginning to go more and more toward a works-based salvation. If the cross is straight ahead, they're going to the left, they're going to the right, they're going in any direction but they're not staying on track. 
And so he begins very forcibly, forcefully in Galatians 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so he confronts their growing belief that salvation might be begun in faith, but it is ended in works. And he confronts this in chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And in really the key statement of the book of Galatians, in verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And now, as so often happens when believers stray in their faith, when they begin to be disobedient, there are consequences. And one of those consequences that we see here, I've experienced it, we've seen it, the Galatians begin to have disdain toward their shepherds. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I become your enemy? But right before this statement, he talks about the good old days. He reminds them of a better time, a better day, the, the, the early days in the church when they loved the gospel and loved Christ and loved the truth and loved their shepherds. And they loved Paul, not just because he was their teacher and their preacher, but they loved him even in the midst of a terrible disease, a terrible malady of some sort. And Paul reminisces with them about how, how they used to be. Uh, apparently, when Paul came to them, he had some sort of horrible condition. Some have surmised that it was malaria. Others think it was some form of epilepsy. Whatever the disease was, it seems to be something that caused great pain physically and also had something to do with his eyes. It, it affected his eyes in some way. And the Galatians had loved him. They had cared for him. And, and the Galatians of old had been that type of church member that we all dream of being, the loving, the kind, the caring, the patient. And so let's forget about the Galatians the way they became and let's think about the way they were because it's very instructive to us. Look at how they were. Look with me at verse 13. And this is our primary text for this afternoon. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And so here we have this incredible example. And I want to just divide this text very clearly. We'll let the text speak to us. Let the Bible teach us. I want to show you from this text three ways to impart genuine compassion. To weep with those who weep. And it might be different than what you're used to. The first way to impart genuine compassion, very simply, we'll just call it receive joyfully. Receive joyfully. 
What do I mean by this? To receive the suffering person joyfully. And you might think, well, that's instinctive. That's normal. I would argue that it's not. That very often we do the opposite. Now, in verse 14, Paul states a positive by defining the negatives that they didn't do. He says, you did not scorn or despise me. To scorn someone, the Greek word means to look down on someone, to have disdain for someone. In other words, they didn't view Paul as less than themselves, which very often can be kind of the the default position you have when you begin to lose patience with someone, that that you begin to view them as less than yourself. And and they didn't despise Paul. It's an interesting word. It literally means they didn't spit at him. They didn't look down on him. They their their speech and their their attitude was not that of disgust and arrogance. Their attitude was of of help and hope and joy with him. They weren't looking down on him. As a matter of fact, what's the opposite of scorn? The English opposite of scorn is to admire someone. It is to look up to them, to receive them as one as you esteem and even respect for the suffering they're bearing. Right, what, what a change in attitude. Listen, in our church, I have had people confess to me, I know so-and-so has been sick and I'm really getting tired of it. How about this? I know so-and-so has been sick and I look up to them for the suffering they've endured. Oh, I wish I could be as faithful as they're being. Then after stating what they did not do, they did not scorn or despise him. They didn't dehumanize him. He says what they did do. He says, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In other words, you, you treated me as if I were God's angel come from heaven or even better as if I were Christ himself. What a wonderful attitude they had. What can you do to receive joyfully the person who's suffering? I want to give you three ways to receive joyfully. I want to be as intensely practical as we can. Three ways to receive joyfully. First, take time to listen empathetically. Take time to listen empathetically. Tell them you really do want to know what they're going through and not just endure the 10-second version. One of the difficult things about this third category of illness is it takes 20 minutes to describe it. Well, last night my foot hurt and I had something on my nose that itched and my hair is coming out only on one side of my head. Uh, My kneecap moved to the other side of my leg and I have a toe that's now pointed 90 degrees. It takes time. You laugh, but these are actual symptoms I've heard from people. It does take time. With Sylvia, one time years ago in another church, Somebody asked, how are you feeling? And Sylvia said, well, actually, I've been feeling very bad lately. Before she even finished her sentence, the woman said, good, good. I'm so glad to hear that. What? In one ear, out the other. Let me give you some common factors that the suffering are often going through that might help you listen empathetically. Here's what they're going through. Sometimes they feel invisible. Sometimes they feel like they begin to be almost a ghost in the world because they're isolated. They begin to feel as though everyone else gets to live a normal life. They begin to feel left out of activities, which health can prevent. Sometimes they'll even feel accused of being dishonest because somebody says, I feel bad all the time. I feel bad all the time. And then you run into that person in at the store and they seem energetic because they had two whole hours where they felt good. So what are you going to do? Of course, I'm going to get out. I'm going to do something. But we go, boy. 
he should be in bed. He should be taking better care of himself. And now people will think you're not being honest. There also comes a certain amount of self-questioning, a certain amount of shame of, I'm tired of telling people I feel bad. I want to give the answer they want to hear. I feel great. Everything's good. You don't have to worry about me anymore. But that's just not the truth. That's not what's happening. The reality is, is that the illness of another does cause impatience. It causes judgmentalism on the part of others at times. And it can begin to have people tune you out with a here we go again kind of an attitude. So we listen empathetically. I think of Heman the Ezraite, who's the author of Psalm 88. He was desperately ill and he, he complained to the Lord in verse 18 of Psalm 88 that the illness had, quote, caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. In other words, I'm alone. Listen, I've heard this from so many people. A sick person can feel alone in a crowded room because they look around and see everyone else is enjoying their life. I'm barely surviving at this moment. I'm by myself. And they may feel lower. They may feel different. They may even feel uncared for by God. But how helpful is it to have an empathetic listening ear, not one that's impatient, not one that's thinking, here we go again. Remember what 1 Corinthians thirteen seven says? It says, love bears all things and bears patiently with the sick person. And what a wonderful testimony of how Christ's love is being lived out. You know, it's a great phrase you can use. How are you feeling? And I really want to know. I'm going to sit down and take all the time you want. What a relief. What a joy. That's weeping with those who weep. That's the first way to receive joyfully. Take time to listen empathetically. Let me give you a second way to receive joyfully. Watch your own heart attitude. Watch your own heart attitude. Listen, if this wasn't an issue, Paul wouldn't be mentioning to the Galatians that they could have despised him. Heman of Psalm 88 wouldn't have mentioned that his friends had shunned him. Heart attitude is an issue in the church. It is an issue in the way we care for the sick. Here's some attitudes to watch out for. He should get this fixed. Why is that? Well, so I can be more comfortable. Or he isn't trying hard enough to get well. Some of you know this. Do you know how much energy and drive it takes to find a diagnosis? And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Do you know how how debilitating it is mentally and emotionally to go to the 17th doctor who gets it wrong? And yet people say, you should fix this. What do you think I've been trying to do? And there's often not a magic pill. Like James Street that I mentioned, it's a combination of factors working in this horrible symphony together. I have literally seen looks of disdain and disgust on someone's face when told that someone is sick again or still suffering. Like, when is he going to do something about that? Or how about watching this attitude? Well, they're just using the illness as an excuse. Listen, you have not lived in that person's body. You have not had that experience. You don't know what the real limits are. You don't know what's actually happening on a day-to-day basis. And so we're not to be critical and, and judgmental. And and you would think, oh, that would never happen to me. There's warnings all over Scripture about this. So clearly it does happen. And I would say this, that it may be one of God's purposes in the trial of that person to help us learn to be patient and humble and empathetic. That it's not just them. First way to receive joyfully, take time to listen empathetically. Second, watch your own heart attitude. And third, this is very, very practical. Listen carefully. 
let an unbalanced relationship be okay. Let an unbalanced relationship be okay. One of the hardest things about being the suffering person is that you can't reciprocate in relationships the way you'd like to. And we we have this yearning that when somebody gives you a gift for your birthday, you want to do the same for them, right? That's what relationships are. We reciprocate. But I've heard in my office so many, many tears cried over this issue with the sick because they feel useless in relationships because they can't repay the kindness that's been shown to them. It's all they can do just to, to make it through a day. You might be patiently listening and empathizing and caring, but the the suffering person might not have the energy to return the favor. Uh, You might have brought meals. You might have hosted the suffering person in your home, but, but the suffering person doesn't have the energy or the wherewithal to reciprocate. So, so what do you do with this? You just let it be okay. First Corinthians 13, five says, love does not insist on its own way. You just redefine your relationship. My relationship with this person is that I give and they receive. And that's the relationship. There is such peace in that. Such wonderful joy in that. And by the way, communicate to the suffering person that that's the way you want it. Here's your job. Your job is to give the things I'm going to, to receive the things I'm going to give to you and to not worry about my love because it will always be there. That's loving That's receiving joyfully, taking time to listen, watching your heart, letting an unbalanced relationship be okay. Well, our text shows us a second way to impart genuine compassion, to weep with those who weep. And and we've sort of already alluded to this, but I want to really hit this very, very specifically. And that is communicate lovingly. Communicate lovingly. At the beginning of verse 15, Paul asks, what then has become of your blessedness? Blessedness was something that the Galatians had previously shown to Paul in the midst of his illness. In this context, blessedness has to do with communication, has to do with a message. And it's not necessarily about words. Look, you're women. You are master communicators. You can communicate whole paragraphs to your husband without ever uttering a word. You can do it, right? If I told you, I want you to go home and communicate to your husband that you're disgusted with him, but you can't use words, that's easy. I got a whole repertoire of how to do that. You are, you are good at that. And you can, you've seen that in your own life when somebody says, when you say something and, and, and somebody suddenly gets this dark look on their face before they've had time to catch themselves, you know exactly the whole paragraph that just went through their mind. And so when he says, that they, they gave him blessedness. They communicated verbally, non-verbally, that it's a word that means that, that you have favor with us. You bring us joy. You bring us happiness. They communicated with him in a way that conveyed unconditional love, communicated acceptance, joy, and just being with him, that he is a human being. He is a follower of Christ. One of the greatest difficulties in being the suffering person, I've had so many people share this with me, is that you begin to feel defined by your illness. That that's me, I'm the sick person. I'm the one who's always ill. And you begin to feel dehumanized. You begin to feel unworthy. A number of years ago for graduate work I was doing, I had to do research on what made for the happiest residents in nursing homes. And I thought it would be the big things. As it turned out, 
one of the biggest factors that the best nursing homes with the happiest residents were the ones that watched out for human dignity. The ones where the women still had their hair done. The ones where the men were were shaven and, and got haircuts and were cleaned up. They were happier. Why is that? Because we're humans made in the image of God, which brings with it a certain dignity. And somebody who's sick all the time begins to lose that dignity. They begin to lose that sense of being made in the image of God. And so it's so important to communicate the inherent worth, the inherent value, the intrinsic goodness. I don't mean from a spiritual standpoint, but just from a made in the image of God standpoint, the, the inherent goodness of the sick person. I don't love you because of what you can do for me. I love you because of who you are, because you're made in the image of God, not because it's a necessarily balanced reciprocal relationship. There's just an intrinsic value as a child of God through Christ, as one whom Christ has allowed to suffer for his sake and for his mysterious purposes. Again, I want to get as practical as we can. I want to give you some, first of all, unhelpful communication. We'll start with the negative and then give you some helpful communication. Now, there are unhelpful communication mistakes that very well-meaning people make. These are mistakes which do not embody the, the spirit of weeping with those who weep. And I'm, call, weep, I'm calling them mistakes and not sins because I don't think they're usually done in a spirit of sinfulness, but in a spirit of helpfulness. Before I go down this list, every one of you in this room, including myself, has made some or all of these mistakes. So don't start storming out. Besides, you still have dessert, so that's good. I've made these mistakes, you've made these mistakes, but let's just learn and grow together to be a better friend, to be a better fellow believer. Let me give you a few unhelpful communication mistakes. First, issue an amateur diagnosis. Give an amateur diagnosis. After hearing 30 seconds of description, start a sentence with, have you tried? That's not useful. With very rare exceptions, God didn't put you here to fix the problem, to be an amateur health professional. Uh, just because you may have had something that sounds kind of similar doesn't mean that the same cause is happening in that person's body. You may even have unique medical knowledge or recognize many, many of the same symptoms. And maybe on a rare occasion, you have useful medical advice to give, but that's rare. You ask permission to talk about specifics. Here's a real simple sentence. I can... I can weep with you and empathize with you or I can ask you specifics and try to help solve the problem, which would be more helpful. Guess what they're going to say 99 times out of 100? Don't need your help, need your love. That's what they're going to say. And here's why I say this. Remember that everyone else is wanting to give medical advice also. I've seen this so many times as a pastor, a brother or sister trying to be helpful says, oh, you should try XYZ treatment. It's, it's done wonders for me. But keep in mind, the sick person has also had 10 other people saying you should try ABC or DEF or GHI or JKL. You should try this potion. You should try that supplement. You should try this treatment. You should try that doctor. You should try this weird guy who practices down in Brazil in the jungle. You should do this or that. And then the person who gives the suggestion comes back a week later and says, did you go to the doctor I recommended? Did you take the supplement? And now there's the emotional pressure to do what that person suggested, even though there's 10 other people making the same suggestion. And when you say as the sick person, no, I didn't. Oh, well, you must not really want to get well then. I've heard those words. I've seen those attitudes. 
And I would encourage you to examine your own heart. Why are you giving out advice? Is it because you genuinely want to be helpful or because you want to be the hero? You want to be the hero? Weep with those who weep. That's heroic. Sometimes sick people are just going to be sickly. That's just the way it's going to be. Here's a second way to communicate unhelpfully. Gossip about that person that he or she is isolating himself from others. Gossip about that person using the saying that he or she is isolating himself from others. Oh, that illness, that's just an excuse. That's just a reason to stay away from people. Do you honestly think that most people want to be isolated? I know none of you do because you're here. That's not usually what we want. Again, I remember Psalm 88. Heman is laid up with an illness that makes social interaction difficult, makes it impossible. It, it takes energy. It takes effort. It takes um, all kinds of, of wherewithal to maintain social contact and, and relationships. And yet I've seen, not in the church, I've seen in our church, a disgust and impatience and literally blaming a sick person for not trying harder. That's not helpful. It's not helpful. Here's a third way to be not helpful. Tell them, or worse, tell others that God is disciplining them. Tell them, or worse, tell others that God is disciplining them. The right answer, if somebody tells you God is disciplining you, is to say, yes, he is, because Hebrews 12 says he disciplines those whom he loves. You don't seem to be under God's discipline. Does God love you? Don't say that, but it feels really good to think it, doesn't it? You don't know the spiritual implications of this person's illness. Maybe God is disciplining them. Maybe they just walked through a sneeze that somebody did in aisle four five seconds earlier. You don't know. That's the mistake of Job's friends who believe that Job was to blame for his illness. You want, you want to know the Christian that scares me the most? The Christian that I fear for the most is the one who lives a lifetime never having suffered. I would tend to believe that person's not even saved because God has not been disciplining them. God has not been bringing suffering and trials into their lives. If and only if you're in a position of deep and genuine trust with the sick person, it's much more helpful to just ask the question, how is your walk with the Lord in the time of suffering? How are you doing? How can I support you and, and, and help you? And let them say, if they say, I feel like God is disciplining me, then speak to them about it. But don't make that judgment. You don't know. Let me give you one more way to be unhelpful. Then we'll emerge from the depths of depression up into the positivities. Fourth way to be unhelpful is use platitudes to replace genuine compassion. Use platitudes to replace genuine compassion. Genuine compassion takes time platitudes don't platitudes are not for the sake of the sick person it's for your sake say well mark that off my list I, I i showed compassion today things like well god is sovereign well that's true but there's no heart there's no relationship behind that and the answer is well i know god is sovereign but i'm still hurting right now or well we all deserve hell anyway i know i deserve hell and i think you do as well at this very moment but I'm saved in Christ and right now I'm hurting. I'm in my own personal hell. Or just remember, God is faithful. I know God is faithful. That's why I asked him to faithfully bring me friends who would weep with those who weep instead of giving me platitudes. 
Genuine compassion takes time, it takes effort, it takes diligence. It doesn't happen in five seconds. Let me give you some helpful communications. We'll emerge into the depths of posi- up to the, the, the heights of positivity now. Helpful communications. I'm just going to list these briefly, five of them. First of all, true spiritual encouragement. True spiritual encouragement. This is, by the way, best given by those who have suffered themselves. It's always cute to me, and I, I enjoy it, but it's cute to me to hear, to hear a 12-year-old give her testimony and say how deeply she suffered in this life. And we go... Yeah, I mean, my best days are better than your worst days or my worst days are better than your best days. You haven't seen this yet. And so if you've suffered yourself, you're in a unique position to provide true spiritual encouragement. Where does true spiritual encouragement come from? It comes from scripture and interpretation of scripture, not, not platitudes. It's the precious nourishing milk of God's word. It's to, it's to share with somebody, I know you know these verses. Can I just read them to you? Psalm 34, 18 and 19 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then you interpret that scripture to the person and say, I know you know this, but I just want you to hear out loud that I don't know when or how or if the Lord is going to deliver you from this, but this I know, he is near to you. And when your spirit is crushed, he's there. He knows you're afflicted. Don't give up. That's spiritual encouragement. Here's a second helpful communication. Pray with and for the suffering. Pray with and for the suffering. Are you willing to make the commitment to pray for the sick on a regular basis? That when you know an affliction that somebody's dealing with, you make a decision to to make them high up in your priorities in prayer. And when you do, let them know, not just, I'm praying for you. Anybody can say that. One of my favorite cartoons of all time shows a pastor seeing a guy coming across the room and he thinks, oh no, there's Bob. I told him I would pray for him. Dear God, help Bob. Amen. (laughs) Hey, Bob, I've been praying for you. That's lame. Instead of saying, I'm praying for you, tell him, I prayed for you this morning. For 20 minutes that the light of Christ would shine through your life today and that by the end of this day you would be able to lay your head on your pillow and say wow the Lord was good to me today that's what I prayed for you that's praying with and for the suffering I've shared this before but I think it's worth sharing again years ago when he was still on this earth my dad made a commitment to my wife He said, I will pray for you every day for the next 90 days. And we happened to go visit him during those 90 days and he showed me a stack of three by five cards about that high. There was 90 of them. And he had put specific prayer requests on each one before the 90 days started so that each day he would have a specific focus in his prayer for her. I can't think of a more encouraging way to pray. Here's a third way to communicate lovingly. Communicate in writing when possible. Communicate in writing when possible. Now you say, oh, Steve, you're stretching this out. That's not in the Bible. Well, there's an obvious precedent for communicating in writing to the sick. What do you think God has done for us? He's given us the book of Job. He's given us Psalms 1 through 150. He's given us countless verses of encouragement that let us know that he understands and that he loves you. 
Psalm 88 is one of my favorite psalms because it ends with the word darkness. You know how most hard psalms kind of end with, but I will rejoice, etc., etc. That one doesn't. It just stops. And you're like, where's the rest of the story? Psalm 88 is there to tell us God gets it when there's not a happy ending coming. He understands. It's communicating in writing. Listen, a, a text is great. If somebody wants to send you a text and that's useful, I do that. It's done for me. That's great. But a handwritten note is better. Why? Because it can be cherished. It can be held. It can be reread. Our quilting ministry, you know what the best part of the quilts are? The little corner that has words. And we have had so many people take those quilts and just literally hold them because they provide comfort through words. Here's a fourth way to communicate lovingly. Be extra gentle in your communication. Be extra gentle in your communication. I need to work on this. You need to work on this. I have witnessed, I have heard secondhand machine gun-like criticism of someone who's suffering or, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that, doctor? What about this medication? Have you taken that supplement? Have you tried this potion? Have you tried standing on your head? Do you have this machine? Have you gotten this workout? Do you have this membership at this gym? Have you done this and that? And you're just like, in the name of Jesus, shut up, please. And it's hard on people. You know when you feel really, really, really bad and you're trying to have a meaningful conversation, how hard it is? How difficult it is? I've heard, I've witnessed tones of voice, backhanded verbal jabs that send the message of disgust and impatience. Do you know that you can literally cause physical reactions in the sick because of your demeanor with them? The human body is a system and relational stress causes any illness to be exacerbated. So you need to be gentle. You need to be kind with your words. Listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is kind and love is not rude. Let me give you one more way to communicate lovingly. Give physical touch. Give physical touch. One of the horrible things about long-term illness is that there's a constant battle against feeling alone, feeling in your own world. And depending on what kind of illness it's happening, maybe you're not very touchable. I've visited the hospital with people that they just smell. They smell bad because horrible things are happening in their bodies. But reaching out in a tangible way to touch, to embrace, is how God made us to give and to receive love and encouragement. I think of the twins, Jacob and Esau, and we like to think in black and white terms that Jacob was the good one, Esau was the bad one. I think it's more accurate to think that Jacob was the one through whom God would perpetuate his redemptive plan. But when Jacob and Esau were going to meet after decades apart, after Jacob had tricked and stolen from Esau, Jacob was terrified of his brother's reaction, but Genesis 33, 4 records, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. He was giving the message of acceptance, of forgiveness. And he did it without words. He did it with an embrace. We call it a hug. And it said it all. How about this? I mean, whole books have been written on weep with those who weep. How about this? I know you're feeling bad. Can we just sit over here in the corner and can I hold your hand for a couple minutes? Can I put my hand on, my, on your shoulder? 
can I give you a hug and not the not the uh, fake I actually hate your guts I don't really love you hug but the let me hug you and just hold you for a minute just hold you Jesus often healed with a touch not because he needed to touch the sick to heal him that wasn't his method but it was part of the love that he was imparting to them. Can you imagine what it was like to be a leper and have had no one touch you for decades? And Jesus comes and puts his hand on them and heals and touches. How kind and how beautiful, how loving. So communicate lovingly. Let me give you a third way to impart genuine compassion. And that is help sacrificially. Help sacrificially. Look at the attitude the Galatians had toward Paul when he was sick. In the verse 15, For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Ironic that in our modern day, organ donation is actually possible. He had no clue that that was possible, but, but he says, if you could have done that, you would have done this. They conveyed to Paul they would do anything to help him. And he says, you were so helpful, I think you would have given me your eyeballs. You would have lost body parts for me. But I want to draw your attention back to verse 14 to this beautiful expression of love. He says, and though my condition was a trial to you. Listen, giving loving words is easy. Loving actions gets harder. Paul's suffering caused others to suffer, caused others to have to sacrifice. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't apologize for this. He doesn't say, I'm sorry that I was such an inconvenience. I'm sorry that you had to make meals for me. I'm sorry that you had to, to, to change my bandages or whatever they had to do. He doesn't apologize for it. This is how the body of Christ is supposed to be with one another. This is how we're supposed to be. This is why we're here. Jesus said that the world will know that you are my disciples because of how you what? Love one another. Weeping with those who weep doesn't just mean sitting with someone in empathy. It means suffering alongside them if you have to. It means doing little things like making meals or mowing the yard or helping with expenses. It means being inconvenienced. How about this? How about adjusting an activity so that the sick person can participate instead of being left out? How about that? How about instead of always finding the people at church who make you feel good, find the person who needs encouragement. Find the person that no one else wants to find. It's a very hard question. It's a question I ask myself. It's a question I'm asking you. How are you willing to change your life to help the sick? How are you willing to be inconvenienced? Now in our church, I'm proud to say I've seen so, so many examples of sacrificial help of of people inconveniencing themselves and seeing themselves as secondary so that they might minister to one another. But I would give you the same admonition that Paul gave the loving church of Thessalonica. He said, I urge you to do still more, to excel still more. So what do you do with this person? Ask them what would be helpful. Sometimes you might ask what could be, what could be helpful and the suffering person might say, I don't know. Right now, I just want to go home. I just want to take a nap. I just want to rest. I don't know. Don't be discouraged by that. Let them know I'm available. I will help if you need me. And if all you want me to do is pray, I will. But I, I will help. I want to do one more thing. It won't take long. 
I want to close out our time this afternoon by showing you a man in the Bible who I think is just about the champion of weeping with those who weep. And is none other than King David himself. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 35. We won't spend much time there. Or you can just listen. Psalm 35 is actually very similar to our Galatians passage because this is David lamenting that those that he had loved so deeply have now turned on him and have come against him. They've begun to act like his enemies. In Psalm 35, verse 11, he says, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. And when David was in some way weak or, or maybe having a hard time in his rule in Israel, these former friends were, were now happy at his failure. Verses 15 and 16, at my stumbling, they rejoiced. And now his former friends are, are against him. And why does this hurt David so much? It hurts him because he remembers how he treated them when they were sick. Look with me at verse 13. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though as I, as I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. What did he do? He mourned for them. He wore sackcloth as a sign of his grief. He fasted for them. He was sacrificially begging God on behalf of, of, of his friends. Most of us won't even fast for our own prayer requests, much less for somebody else's. He prayed continually. Verse 13, when it says here that he prayed with his head bowed on his chest, the Hebrew can mean my prayers kept returning to myself. In other words, even when my prayers seemed unanswered and unanswered and unanswered, I continued going to God on your behalf. He grieved openly for them. In verse 14, he says, I went about, literally, I walked around. Others knew I was grieving for you. It wasn't just private. It was public. This is a man who could weep with those who weep. He grieves with them. He fasts for them. He prays for them. He acts as if it is him who's suffering. What a terrific example for us. I want to close by just reading a scripture to you. It's very familiar, but before I read it, I want to put you in the right frame of mind. Right now, at this moment, I want you to have in your mind the suffering sick person. Maybe it's a specific person. Maybe it's just theoretical Maybe it's someone who's afflicted in long-term ways. But I want you to put that suffering sick person in your mind and I want you to listen to these verses with that person in mind. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I'll bet you know the last three words, love never ends. Can we keep that in mind with the sick amongst us?
Weep with those who weep. Our Father, we thank you for the clear direction of Scripture. And we pray, Lord, that these precious ladies, and, and I am thankful for a church that already is so very loving, but we would follow after the example of the Thessalonians to excel still more. I'm thankful for these ladies and their love they have for one another. I pray that we would take it to new heights that we never imagined possible. I pray that not only through our member care ministry would we love yet more, but spontaneously, Lord, we would gravitate toward one another and that nobody in our body of believers would feel alone, would feel left out, would feel uncared for. Help us, Lord, to take the example of the early Galatian church, to take the example of David, to take the admonition of Paul. When he said, let love be genuine, and how do we do that? To weep with the weeping. Might we do that with faithfulness so that Christ might be honored, so that the gospel might be demonstrated in truth. Until Christ returns for us, we pray these things in his name. Amen.